Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You've got Logan Jones and Evan Knowles recording here in Lexington out of the Awesome Inc. studio. And we just had an awesome interview with uh, the co-founder and managing partner of Kinetic Ventures up in Covington, Kentucky, Brad Zapp. So we talked all about Kinetic Ventures, um, specifically about how they use uh, data and artificial intelligence to make investment decisions. And he kind of tells the story of how they started doing that uh, and how it actually led to more investment in underrepresented founders and underrepresented geographies. And it's a really cool story of just uh, letting the numbers tell the story and using a very scientific approach to investing, uh, especially in this region. So it's a, it's a really awesome uh, firm that we were lucky to have here in this region. Um, so we, we covered all about how they make those investments, how they collect that data that they feed into their uh, artificial intelligence uh, model and machine learning model. Um, and then we talk a lot about his thoughts on you know funding in this region. Um, that's why I'll let Evan pick up on this because that's how this conversation came about was through some of your LinkedIn posts. Yeah. I mean, he's very candid about his perspectives on fundraising in this region. And he's very honest and it's just a fact that we're, we're, we're behind the times, you know, when it comes to fundraising and he mentions that, uh, and he gives specific reasons why. So stay tuned to hear, you know, his thoughts on, you know, why we are behind and what's, what are some specific ways that, uh, you know, we need to improve. Uh, and so very, again, very candid on that. He's been an investor in this region for a long time. They've actually been the largest fund uh, in Kentucky for a long time. So he's, um, again, had a lot of success. Uh, he's got a great perspective and he's just a fun guy to be around. I, I, I was with him at a UK event not too long ago and it's just everybody that knew him, you know, there's a sense of joy that comes uh, from being around Brad and you can feel it. Uh, he's got a good energy and he definitely brings it uh, to this podcast. So this is a great one. We're looking forward to you listening to it. Uh, and as an extra token at the end, he is talking about how much he loves the University of Kentucky. A uh, huge fan, went to the University of Kentucky, and he gives us thoughts on why it's special to him and where he sees the university going into the future and some of the great things they're doing. Uh, so all around great episode. Yep. And before we dive into this, as we do, we just want to get a quick word from our sponsors. Middle Tech is presented by KY Innovation, the Kentucky Cabinet for Economic Development's entrepreneurship and innovation partner. KY Innovation exists to support and develop Kentucky's startup ecosystem, and we are proud to work alongside an organization whose mission aligns so closely with ours. If you're a founder building in Kentucky, you need to check out the resources that KY Innovation has to offer. You can find more information at kyinnovation.com. We are also sponsored by Bolt Marketing. As a business owner, you're forced to wear multiple hats, but you should be focused on growing your business while you let somebody else handle your marketing. Our friends over at Bolt offer a full suite of services from websites to branding that will help you transform your marketing and grow your business. To learn more about how Bolt can help you with your business goals, you can check them out at buildwithbolt.com. Again, that's buildwithbolt.com. Our next sponsor is the Johnson Law Group and Brandon Johnson. Brandon represents my startup and I've had great experience with them and works with companies from inception to billion dollar valuations. Whether you are trying to formalize a side hustle or bring new technology to market, the Johnson Law Group is willing to help by offering a free 30-minute consult. Schedule yours today at thejohnsonlawgroup.com and tell him that we sent you. All right, we're sitting here with Brad. And Brad, the last time you and I saw each other, we were celebrating the University of Kentucky at the football field, had a great dinner, had a great conversation. So we're looking forward to diving in some of the topics we discussed at that dinner, but had a blast with you. Uh, we're looking forward to, to speaking. So thanks for joining. Really glad to be here. Glad you finally invited me. 
Well, we're looking forward to diving into Connect Ventures. Uh, Wendell, the unique technology you guys use to uh, vet entrepreneurs as they come through your system, and also just talk about you know the local ecosystem, uh, what it's like to fundraise in this ecosystem, what it's like to fund businesses in this ecosystem, and then obviously we all have uh, ties to the University of Kentucky. So I want to touch on that a bit at the end. So just to kick it off, walk us through you know where you're from and where you went to school. Well, I'm from Northern Kentucky. Um, whole families from Northern Kentucky, so definitely rooted in um, the community. And um, I went to school at the University of Kentucky, so I definitely have a lot of ties to that. I've been a longtime entrepreneur and operator myself. I've started uh, five companies. Uh, I had a couple of them are still going. Uh, I run the gamut from capital markets, consulting, real estate, um, software, and venture capital. So kind of have a, a flair for, you know, uh, different models. And I definitely can relate uh, to other entrepreneurs because I've lived it um, for uh, 20 years. And I still call Northern Kentucky home. I live in a real small town um, just south of Cincinnati, 20, 21 miles south of Cincinnati called Walton, Kentucky. And talk a little bit about your professional background leading up to getting into venture capital and, and starting Kinetic Ventures. What did that look like for you? So I have a finance background. So I've, I've always been in finance, ba- uh, banking, and capital markets. Um, most of the time was wealth management and really putting together, you know, asset allocation, portfolios, large cap, mid cap, small cap, you know, international uh, cash uh, holdings for the Affluent marketplace is what it's called over there. In venture capital, we call it the accredited investors. Um, but it's really, it's really the same uh, clientele. And I, I cut my teeth doing that in a super interesting time because I graduated the University of Kentucky in 2000. And if you think about the six or seven years leading up to 2000 was the original great bull run and the original tech market. And so everything you were kind of taught um, leading up to me actually entering the workforce didn't work at all once I entered the workforce because literally from the first day I got into the stock market, it just went down. And everything I was taught was it just goes up. And so, you know, up was down and down was up. And that's really important in why I became into venture capital is because I became fascinated with alternative investments and non-correlated investments because nothing was working when I first, you know, got into business. And then, you know, a few years later, um, when I was doing personal investing, um, you know, and they called it angel investing, I started scratching my head and, and wondering if this is such a good thing, if people make really do make money in this, why isn't everyone invested in this? And that really led to the starting of Kinetic Ventures. Yeah, walk us walk us through that. So you said you did some angel investing. You're just trying to find alternative investments. Answer that question. Why weren't more people doing venture capital and why did you decide to do it? So again, I was in a, a hyper-regulated environment. So, and this is a super hot topic right now. But in order for us to sell products or make advice of products to retail investors, They have to be, in general, what's called a registered investment company. And, you know, there's all sorts of rules that roll up into that. 
But if, if you have an investment product that is registered with the SEC, has certain size liquidity requirements, um, you know, and different disclosures, then it's suitable for all types of investors. And so that those products are much, much more limited than you probably can imagine. There's only about, you know, 3,900 publicly traded stocks. There's only 500 closed-in mutual funds, and there's only 7,500 open-ended mutual funds in all of America. So it's a really it's it's a really tiny sandbox. So when you know you're a rookie and and you're learning, you know, hey, we should put your money 10% here and 5% here, that's the sandbox you play in. So you're completely just oblivious to the unregulated market. So it was only later in my career when you come across, you know, just different um, you know, personal relationships and and whatnot. And I had an opportunity, um, I ran across a venture capitalist and I had an opportunity to invest in another fund. And then there was a local accelerator started and, you know, that created, you know, some energy and some stuff that I start investing in that. So that was probably 2012. And I really, I'd never contemplated, um, you know, how did Apple get to be, you know, uh, almost a trillion dollar company? You know, what did it look like in the 70s? never even crossed my mind. Right. But I was able to start seeing some really interesting and new things. Uh, like I said, probably around 2012 and it had this energy around it. And I, I did, you know, as a capital markets guy, I started saying, well, that's, that's awesome that I have these opportunities, but why, you know, why is this not available to everybody? Why aren't financial advisors and family offices aware of this? And I just, you know, started to go down that, um, discovery line. And, you know, it ultimately led me to saying, well, I think this is something that should be institutionalized and become more widely available. And then lead that up into kinetic ventures. So I guess a, a good way to start that would be whenever somebody asks what kinetic ventures is, uh, what do you tell them? Well, Kine- kinetic ventures is a, a, a private fund as opposed to a public fund. So I think one day soon you will see us become a public fund. But it led into that because I wanted to solve the riddle, you know, can this really be a asset class for, you know, everybody that belongs in some portion of their portfolio. And I couldn't do that in a regulated environment, you know, you know, at the time. It's not something we custody all our funds um, in my last company, Fidelity Investments. And it's not something that you could get across the finish line at Fidelity or at the SEC. So you had to remove yourself as a registered representative or a registered investment advisor from that environment, and you could start a private fund. And the rules are pretty loose on a private fund as long as you're selling it to accredited or qualified investors, rich people. So because that's, you know, they should know better or they have the financial wherewithal uh, to withstand any losses. And so we used that, um, you know, I used my skills of, you know, being a, a capital markets guy to create this private fund. And we basically aggregate money from call it 50 or so investors and we pool their money. And then we go out across the U S and we find private deals that are not available for them to buy through their brokerage accounts or their 401ks. 
Got it. And how big is your all's fund at Kinetic Ventures? And do you guys focus your portfolio on any particular industries or sectors? Yeah, we're just over $28 million, um, which we're really proud of. I mean, we're from Kentucky. This is in Silicon Valley. And I don't know if we are still the largest private fund in Kentucky, but we were um, when we started. And, and if we're not, we will be again when we launch our next one. So we put together a, a good chunk of change to uh, deploy a very serious strategy. And we are broadly diversified, I would say, as comparative to most other funds. But if I was to put it into big chunks, we're about 75% software. And we do both enterprise B2B and we do consumer software. And then we're 25% consumer goods. So we do food, um, better for you products, beverage, household, consumer goods, beauty, fashion. Yeah. And something that I want you to hit on and, and kind of brag on yourselves about when I was looking through your website, uh, you guys definitely place an emphasis on investing in uh, underrepresented minorities and underrepresented uh, you know, geographies. So talk a little bit about your all's thesis behind that and the reasoning you're doing that. And then also how you're doing it. Because I noticed there was some talk about AI and, and big data to make those decisions. So... I mean, here's the thing. We have no, well, when we started, I mean, things have changed. We had no emphasis on that. We, we, had, we had one emphasis, one mantra at our company is this was supposed to be a sophisticated financial instrument for people to put in their portfolios, to add diversification, to add alpha, to add financial returns. That was the only promise. I didn't make any do-gooder comments about community jobs or, or you know, um, overlooked founders, marginalized founders, or anything like that. What happened, though, as a part of the challenges that we faced by being a venture capital firm in Kentucky, which is literally in the middle of nowhere, okay, and there's other states that feel the same way, but we can claim that too, is we had to find different ways to get into deals. We had to find a way to identify opportunities that we thought, you know, could could you know re return, um, you know, money for our our customers. And so what happened is we did um, sort of create this money ball mentality uh, around you know founders and um, companies. The byproduct of that which we didn't see happening was turns out that if you're a white male, that doesn't make you a great founder. And it turns out if you're a non-white male, that doesn't make you a bad founder. And so when you create sort of this different rubric and this different algorithm of, you know, how can we just put every deal through a very binary process um, and what turns out to be a very inclusive process in an otherwise exclusive world, then the AI started recommending all types of companies and founders that admittedly, there's no way I personally would have invested in. But now that I saw these companies through a different lens, it changed, it changed everything. And again, the byproduct of what we've done, I don't know exactly. I mean, we do 1.5 deals a month, so it's hard for me to give you exact real-time data but probably 60% of our companies, that's a lot, without trying, are anything other than an all, you know, white male founded team. And I think that's, 
that's super interesting. I think it's even more interesting that we did that without trying and we're not an only fund, mm-hmm. you know, female only, minority only. We're, we're not that. Um, we're an everybody fund. And uh, we didn't even know our track record um, until a woman in Chicago pointed it out to us. And she says, do you have any idea what you guys have done so far? From a diversity standpoint, like what's your what do you have uh you know parameters around that? And I was at lunch with her and I was like, What are you talking about? And she's like, Well, I counted it. You're like 27 out of 51, you know, or female or minority owned businesses. I like we are. I had hadn't even crossed my mind. Hmm, that's awesome. That's uh super interesting just thinking about, you know, the numbers don't lie and, and letting artificial intelligence and data kind of drive those decisions. And then from that, you start seeing all of these uh, you know, underrepresented founders actually starting successful businesses. I think that's a really interesting model to let that drive the investment decisions you guys are making. Um, yeah, I mean, with the with the data, try, can you give us a little bit more insight into where that data is coming from and what's being fed into that model to you know, make those investment recommendations to you guys? Sure. I mean, it's not all of it's over, overly complex, but what we started out with was a basic questionnaire is we saw really early on that, the pitch was broken. And, you know, my brain wants to lie to me. I call it the crocodile brain. It just wants to make a decision and go back to something fun like my mobile video games. And so when someone comes into a pitch, which you know they've practiced a thousand times with two dozen different mentors, and, you know, that's not even who they are. They're they're behavior modifying. You know, they've got this just this perfect thing. And within the first 90 seconds, I'm going to fall in love or I'm going to hate the deal. I'm not going to listen to anything else. And then if I do love the deal, all my diligence is biased. It's just going to back my original thesis that that's, that that's a great idea. So originally, we just thought the whole process was stupid from an investment standpoint. It's not what happens in the capital markets. In the capital markets, at least for us, we had a very serious list of criteria, a checklist mentality. And so I was like, I can't believe people aren't using a checklist mentality when it comes to private investing, where the the dangers of, of forming a bias are just just you know um, more evident. So we created a checklist mentality of things that we either knew through or assumed just through our experiences um, would be important. And so and we did that with the mindset to make sure that any of the data that we collected through that checklist could be quantified. So if it can be observed, it can be measured. And if it can be measured, you can use machine learning. It's as simple as that. And so it was a concept of kind of like, hey, with technology today, there's no reason if I have the ability to become or to have a photographic memory and not use it seems silly. So number one, we we just did that. It was very intentional to, to have a data mindset. The second more interesting thing that I think we did was the sort of behaviors, the skills, what is really required of you as a human being to be a founder, entrepreneur, CEO in the high growth, high tech venture capital world is super unique. And that is not something that everyone is going to be capable to do. And it didn't matter how much training or how much mentorship or how much money that you would give individual A versus individual B is over time, 
there is going to be a group of people that were born in a certain manner that they could handle what is going to be the ups and downs of, you know, early stage investing. And so that we believe that we believed it, we believe it wholeheartedly, the data supports it. And so we wanted to create a behavioral assessment from the ground up that was very intentional to make sure that we could measure behavior traits that we either knew from existing scientific research or that we personally believed, you know, taking a small sample size of successful entrepreneurs that we already knew, create this assessment. That way we could assess every single founder, CEO, and the rest of their team, and we could break them up into profiles. And as soon as you do that, you create a data set. And it's a data set that we can track. So it's not, it doesn't have to be Brad's opinion. It's not my opinion that, you know, the visionary profile outperforms the mingler. It's a fact. It's not that there isn't a mingler profile that can't or hasn't been successful as an entrepreneur. I'm just telling you that if there's been 100 minglers and only one of them has been successful, are you good enough to bet on that mingler? Or do we want to look up at the accelerator and the visionary? And these are just names of different profiles that we created, you know, out of thin air. And if they've been successful 70 out of 100 times, you don't have to be a genius to start allocating your money into those into that group of people that were literally born with traits that more readily give them an advantage in this arena. And that's all we did. Yeah. It's, yeah, it makes so much sense, you know, when you describe it that way. And you guys are planning on selling this to other VC firms. If I remember correctly, at dinner, you were talking about that. Where are you all in that process and what does that commercialization look like? I would be shocked if we sell this to other VC firms. I think the most likely buyer is hedge funds. So if you think of, if you just look at the, you know, the geography of VC firms in dollars, regardless of the great migration, it's in California and it's also on the East coast. And some of them are highly successful. So the first problem with selling to VCs, if, if someone's not in crisis, desperation or losing, why would they change their process? So you can already get rid of Sequoia and Andreessen, Kleiner Perkins, Graycroft, and all the ones that are doing good for themselves and for their investors. Okay, they, there's, they're winning. Good for them. Good for them. And if you can invest with them, you should. Um, but then you've got this, this other group, and they've created a narrative for themselves. And narratives are hard to get away from because that's how you sold yourself or your firm to your, your customers. And a lot of the narratives kind of go like this. I have access to proprietary deal flow that you don't. And I got an eye to know what's good. Well, that's the opposite of what we're saying is I have access to everything and everyone has access to me and I don't have a very good eye, but I have software that does that gives us an incremental advantage, like basic black, blackjack strategy that if applied over time, we can probably make money. And VCs are broke. That's the other thing that people don't understand. Andreessen may have money. The rest of us don't. Hedge funds, they got money. Hedge funds are already paying millions of dollars for their Bloomberg softwares and their black box. Hedge funds never meet the companies they invest in. They're all black box. They're high frequency traders. And if you look at the flow of funds from hedge funds that are capital markets, 
until COVID, and they've been eking into private markets. So I suspect any commercialization efforts will be hedge fund driven. That's very interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of these uh, companies that are in your portfolio, uh, because we've had a couple of them on on our podcast, just to name a few. We've had Cloverleaf, Podchaser, Handle Global. Um, What are some of the companies you like to highlight that are doing some cool things that you guys have invested in? I mean, I can't remember if we were on there or not, but I mean, I can't help, you know, you never know at the early stage that we invest in, um, you know, which ones are actually going to be a breakout from investment performance, right? I mean, we have high conviction at the moment we invest in, in all of them. Uh, but we were talking about Colorcast and, you know, when it, when it comes from disruption, if we were being honest with each other from Kentucky the opportunity to invest in a disruptive business model is really rare. I mean, we get new tech, you get displacement players, but something so brand new it is really rare. And, you know, um, Colorcast is a platform that basically allows anyone who's an avid fan of any live sports team to go online and basically be a live broadcaster, you know, um, podcaster, color commentary, whatever you want to call it. And I think that's super interesting. And I want to give it sort of two comparisons and why I think this is powerful and why I think Colorcast is likely a billion dollar company. My first comparison is, you remember how hot um, Clubhouse was in Silicon Valley for like two hot seconds? And their concept was this live learning module that you'd get, you know, someone interesting and they immediately go on live and then, you know, they teach about a subject or have panels or conversations or whatever. And it really didn't work. And I think the reason it didn't work and isn't working is because you don't need live learning. You don't. You want to learn at your own pace. You want it recorded. You want to press pause. I mean, that's, you know, but they were on to that live and individual uniqueness. Well, guess what does have to be live? Sports. Live sports is not going away anytime in our lifetime. And so I think that's that's tackling that clubhouse type mentality in an arena that makes sense in a live world. And then you see it on Monday Night Football, the Manning cast. And so it's like, all right, I don't want to listen to Chris Collins. I like Chris Collinsworth. I'm, you know, Cincinnati fan. But hey, the Mannings are kind of funny. And it's kind of interesting having that living room mentality. Well, that's color cast. Hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of different places that it can, that it can go. Um, so that's, that's a super fun one. Where so are that's they? a Kentucky-based company there? No, honestly, look, we have over 85 unique um, portfolio companies. And I'm certainly not the lead investor on any of them. <laughs> so even though I run the company, I mean, I lead our strategic initiatives fundraising, content, data. Um, We have uh, three other um, venture capital partners. They lead all the deals. I I don't remember exactly. Yeah, looks like they're out of Austin. We're looking them up on on Crunchbase, Texas. Austin, Texas, yeah. Yeah, but that's uh, just for the listeners. We were chatting about this uh, offline before recording. I was just at a career fair at UK for Lead Rilla and was talking to a kid that wanted to get into sports, sports broadcasting. He was like, yeah, I found this awesome company, Colorcast, um, they let you just like commentate 
the sporting events on your own. And what an, what a fantastic idea for content creators and personalities around the sports industry in general. I could definitely see someone like a Matt Jones doing something like that and gaining a big following on a platform like that. So anyway, super interesting company um, yeah. that I did that I did notice on your uh, on your portfolio. So I'm glad you brought them up. Yeah. Cool. Well, now let's transition to fundraising in the region. So we spent a little bit of time here. Uh, this is actually how we got this conversation going, was I was posting about fundraising in this region. I had just gone through it, wanted to share some tips and some my perspective from doing that on LinkedIn. And I wanted to get your thoughts on, from an investor's perspective in this region, uh, what is your perspective on what it's like to fundraise or be an investor in this region? You were touching on earlier, and most of the funding comes from the coast, but give us your perspective on fundraising in middle America. I think it's really hard for the founders. I, I think it's hard for investors too. I, I think we are at the infancy of what we will be five to, to 10 years from now. I think there's, you know, there's just a lot of individual investors and a lot of first time founders are coming from two completely different perspectives that are really far apart, quite honestly. And I think some of the founders, you know, particularly if they're of the younger age, they're probably more educated, not by experience, but whether it's, you know, podcasts, broadcasts, you know, books, blogs, um, following different feeds and social media, they have an opportunity to learn skills, business models, and thought processes from the coast. Investors, particularly individual ones, they have, have probably not done the same things and they are living off of a personal experience. And so they, are, they have a historical mindset. Entrepreneurs have a future forward-looking mindset. And I think that can cause some you know, pretty serious you know, problems on you know, all sorts of expectations, whether it's expectations on diligence, performance, reporting, um, valuations, you, you, you name it. And so I'm not suggesting that the entrepreneur is right or that the individual investor is wrong. I'm suggesting that they're really far apart. Mm. And, you know, I, you know, I don't remember, I remember when you posted on LinkedIn, I just don't remember everything you said, but, you know, I think there was a lot around that. And I do think there are some investors that are well-traveled. And when you bring a national or global perspective, then it's a lot easier to say kinetic for us to get a lot closer, you know, to, you know, where the entrepreneur is. I think the challenge that I see in our ecosystem is there's a lot of noise out there. And so you want to make sure that, let's say for sake of argument, that kinetic can bring some value to hey, entrepreneur, here's how you build a data room and that's how you get funded, or here's what your pitch deck should look like, or here's what I really care about, that you need to make sure that, that that gets lifted up, elevated, and the light gets shined on that to say, entrepreneurs, you need to listen to this voice. And, you know, we have a lot of non-check writers spewing a lot of mentorship and knowledge that is not helpful for founders to get funded. And, um, you know, so I think it's, I just think 
I think it's I think it's tough. I think it's tough all the way around. And I think that's probably normal for an industry in its infancy. And that's really where I think we are. Yeah, I think it's a maturity of the ecosystem. You know, I think mm-hmm. we just have to be, you know, very open and transparent with the fact and not and and honest with ourselves about, you know, the maturity of our ecosystem and try to push that forward as much as we can. And, you know, to your point, you know, one thing that, that is frustrating that, you know, is going to be solved over time is the people writing checks for either never were entrepreneurs or uh, they they can't put themselves in those shoes because they haven't been around many and maybe they came from a very corporate background and that's where they made their money. And so that, that is part of the frustration. I think you're right there that the people writing checks, you know, don't have the right backgrounds to give that advice or give that uh, mentorship to founders. And you see that pretty often. Uh, one thing that I was curious about, because I've noticed that from what I was taught prior to COVID to what I experienced after COVID in relation to raising venture capital was was very different. So how has COVID, in your eyes, changed what it's like to be either a venture capitalist or raise money as a founder? Well, I think it's provided the opportunity. It, it fast-forwarded a digital landscape. And so there's there's really any geographic limitations that existed before. I mean, there's, there's clearly, there's still some, but it's, it's not the same. I mean, the comfort level, you know, from an investor standpoint, um, and I'll get back to us in a minute because we've always been comfortable, but the, the landscape, for example, I'll remember very clearly April of, I call it COVID number one, because we've had like three COVIDs, right? But do you remember, like, the world was on fire. Uh, we were just, we are all going to die. And uh, I was on all kinds of different Slack channels and, and um, you know, different texting change with VCs. And, and the number one question was, are you literally, are you going to do deals? And, and are you going to do deals digitally? Are you going to do deals without meeting the founder? And in person, Right. And I don't think that's a question anymore. Um, I don't know any VC, any legitimate VC that wouldn't do a deal digitally. Um, I, that doesn't mean it's not better. It's not doesn't mean, and I can't speak for the Valley, but I'm saying outside the Valley, I don't know any VC that isn't comfortable getting comfortable over Microsoft Teams or Zoom, period. Uh, so I think that's great for founders. I think it's great for America. I mean, for us, it was very validating. Um, I can tell you I was made fun of on Twitter, literally, probably in December, October, November, December of 2019, right before COVID number one, because I was a digital VC. And that was crazy because this is a belly to belly business. Really? (laughs) Is it? I mean, really? So like... You know, we went from being just lunatics to thought leaders. Like we were digital VC number one in America, number one. And so in April of COVID number one, you know, my deal flow went from 40 a month to 140 a month. That month, it might have been 280 because New York was shut down. And so even if you were like, we got to do some uh, cool deal with DraftKings because all the VCs in New York City left for Connecticut and the Hamptons on Long Island. And even great companies were like stuck in their apartments and they're like, what do we do? I don't know. Here's this company down in Kentucky. They're taking meetings online. Let's call them. And 
we went from maybe one deal a month in New York to, you know, probably a hundred in April to, to give you a literal perspective of how our world changed. And it's pretty much never stopped for us ever since. So to end, to end this topic uh, of discussion around, you know, raising money in Kentucky and being a VC in Kentucky, um, when I was raising money, I had several angels uh, look at me and, and some some syndicate groups say, "Well, you're in Kentucky, so your valuations need to be lower." Is that fair to say anymore? What, how do you guys approach valuations? Is that time that that statement is relevant? Over talk about that. Uh, yeah, well, we valuation we're buying stock, right? I mean, so on one hand, I mean, mathematically, it's pretty simple. The lower your valuation, the more stock I can buy. And that's a good thing from an investment standpoint, potentially. But do I think that's geographically limiting? I think that's a pretty limiting comment that's off base. And that's that's the equivalent of me saying that we're handicapped in some way because I'm an entrepreneur in Kentucky. That's ridiculous. That's completely ridiculous. Um, I've met plenty of smart people in all parts of Kentucky. I've met plenty of smart people in all parts of New York. I don't think the people in New York that are smart are any smarter than the smart people in Kentucky. And I met plenty of dumb people in Kentucky and dumb people in New York. They're the same dumb. So I think that's a pretty limiting statement. I don't think it's true at all. As long as you're investing in a globally scalable enterprise, particularly where we live today with the distributed workforce, I don't, I don't know that it much matters. Makes a ton of sense. So let's talk about what I know you love to talk about, Kentucky, University of Kentucky. Uh, that's the last time we were together was at a dinner to celebrate the University of Kentucky. Uh, you're very active with Kentucky. Uh, you uh, talk about, you know, how, how active are you? What do you, what do you enjoy uh, about being still connected with the University of Kentucky? You know, many alumni, they graduate and say goodbye. You, you really haven't done that. Talk about why and what you do. Look, I'm from Kentucky, many generations from Kentucky, Northern Kentucky. I'd be remiss not to say that I do love Northern Kentucky University as well. They're just younger. You know, they're, they've been a public university um, for 45 years, Division One for, a, um, you know, even less time than that. But I, you know, grew up um, watching Kentucky basketball, and then I literally grew up attending the University of Kentucky and, you know, had met some of um, the best people and, and best friends and had some of the best experiences, you know, in my life during those, those formative years and the university itself as a brand and just all those personal connections hasn't done anything to lower, you know, how I feel about them. And so any, any opportunity that I've had, or I've been asked to participate, collaborate and be a team member with the University of Kentucky, which I would do to NKU as well. But um, I've certainly said yes to that. Uh, A lot of it, if I'm to be truthful, comes from a lifelong passion that one day I'm going to hang up my business stripes and I want to be a teacher. And, um, and, you know, that, that could be at the University of Kentucky in some sort of adjunct professorship. I've attended some classes of some friends of mine who have, have done the same thing and I'm super jealous of them. So it's, look, it's been, it's been nothing but great. I spend, you know, a lot of time doing some different things um, down there at my old college, the Gatton School of Business. I was just down there um, 
last month, um, introduced my daughter, who's going to be attending there in the fall, to actually my old economics professor. And it was great to see her, you know, still there. Um, you know, and uh, she could tell my daughter some stories uh, about me. Uh, but, you know, Kentucky is also, I wish, I'm maybe I wish we would have gotten there sooner, but we're finally doing some really great things around um, startups and intellectual property transfer and, you know, social startups and esports gamings. And I hang out with everyone in those arenas. Um, I like what they're doing. I'm very supportive of what they're doing. I hope to be, there's, um, I think, some big news coming out of the university maybe next month. It's not my story to tell, but I'll be involved on some level with that um, that I think will be super awesome. Yeah. I think we know what you're referring to. We'll let them also share that story. Uh, yeah. And that, that exciting announcement for our state. Uh, I think you're right. You know, as soon as I, this is funny because I, I was at UK from 2014 through 2016. And the year I'd, I'd left college, they started to do all the entrepreneurship and startup stuff. <laughs> and it was amazing. And it's been so cool to watch them introduce all this stuff and do such a great job, whether it's the venture studio within Gadden or Ian McClure and what he's doing on the commercialization side of things. Uh, it's really exciting to watch the Kentucky University of Kentucky, you know, grow up and start to uh, introduce, you know, these amazing things for our community, especially just within the startup space. Yeah, Ian's a good get. So, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's brought a new level. So we need about five Ian's in different departments down there. So I think that's a good model as we need to say, look what Ian's done. And we need to provide resources to other areas. Ian can't do it all. And we need to grow, you know, a campus wide initiative. I'd say the same thing. NKU needs to do the same thing. But uh, Kentucky seems to be on track for the moment. Well, as we as we wrap things up here, we always like ending on a forward-looking statement. So uh, tell us what your vision for the future is for this region as it kind of relates to the area you're playing in with VC and startups. So, I mean, I think a vision that I would have for our region is that we we decide to mature and to become a player. I think... Right now, I hope people hear this, is we are participating in startup theater. And we are not awesome. We are not great. We are not competitive. We're not. And we need to recognize that because the outside world recognizes that about us. That's not to suggest that we are not sitting on a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity on future of work, e-commerce, and logistics in Kentucky. We are. But we're never going to capitalize on opportunities if we actually believe the hype of where we are in our journey. We're not. So I just, you know, forward looking, I expect that, you know, we will find the right leadership to, you know, make Kentucky or the region that surrounds Kentucky. You know, we can be the center of, you know, a tech ecosystem you know, for decades to come. I think it's up for grabs who the next Silicon Valley is. And it would be crazy not to throw a hat in the ring, but do I think there needs to be behavior change and new, you know, who leads this charge? Yeah, I do. I love that. I love the realness of that outlook. You know, a lot of times we'll just get a big, you know, maybe a little bit of fluff in the answer, Uh, but it's good to have one that's very real and very looking in the mirror and realizing, 
you know, what, what's actually going on in this ecosystem. So uh, before we let you go, I always la- like giving our guests a chance to plug where uh, listeners can go and learn more about them and what they're into. So any websites you want to point listeners to or uh, personal places, um, let us know. Yeah, we have a new website. So I was told our last one was uh, not awesome. So I think we have an awesome um, new website, kineticventures.com. And uh, that should link to our content. We are regular blog writers on medium.com. We regularly write LinkedIn articles. Um, All the VCs, including myself, write that. And we have a podcast of our own called The Aggregate, um, which is a crossover podcast between Wendell and the behavioral assessment AI and Kinetic and the stories of our founders. So we do one season a year. So we had a 2021 season that's fully posted on The Aggregate. And um, in two weeks, I start season two of The Aggregate. So we'd love to see you at our website. We'd love to see you apply for funding, like us on LinkedIn, and listen to our podcast.